Welcome to Exploring Axon, a podcast where we discuss Axon Framework, Axon Server, and their ecosystem. I am your host and the producer of this podcast, Sarah Tori. Welcome to the second portion of my talk with Dominic Hoytelbeck. In this portion of our conversation, we talked about uh, how attribute-based access control can be used to secure Axon applications. He explained about the Spring Boot integration and Axon command side and the query side. He talked about the annotation that he has introduced in his framework that integrates very nicely with Axon framework. He also talked about integration and the ways it can be deployed and what kinds of support are offered for authoring of policies. Dominic talked about this topic during our conference in September of last year in Amsterdam. I will include the link to that presentation in the notes as well as some other helpful information. I hope you enjoyed the second portion and let's have a listen. Now, as promised, um, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about um, Axon and how you came to basically know about Axon and kind of started your journey and um, knowing more about Axon framework and uh, and so on. So let's go back to maybe the <laughs> sort of intro part of things. Um, you did mention that you are partnering with Axon. So tell me a little bit about that uh, a bit more and why Axon and maybe even more high level than that, why domain-driven design? Let's maybe start with that. For me, my start was uh, actually related to the access control domain, uh, <laughs> but it was very pragmatic because uh, in the late 2000s, uh, we were starting a project in the IoT space, uh, working with um, Sandvik Coromand, which is now Bosch, um, Volvo Construction monitoring their fleets of um, fleets of construction robots. I know Sandvik Coromand is not Bosch; that was Haglund's Drives, gotcha. <laughs> which was a hydraulic <laughs> motor. Sorry for the mix-up. Mm. Um, and we're basically monitoring um, fleets of machines, mm -hmm. also software processes and parts. Uh, with raw sensor data coming in. And there were cross-organizational collaboration scenarios where people and engineers would work with external experts and they needed to do these dynamic projection of real-time data based on their models and change that at runtime to find problems. Mm -hmm. So, and what we did back then was uh, writing collaborative applications for that, which uh, were using uh, social graphs as modeling uh, the, the organizational structures of the different teams interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. And back then, we said, oh, yeah, let's just use uh, XSCML for access control. We can basically express that very a lot of stuff with that um, and go for it. And we quickly found out that that was not really working so well for <laughs> us because our yeah. social graphs were using semantic web technologies, triple stores were graph-like and you had to do type inference and all that kind of good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it was difficult to use with uh, Zagmal. And one of the sub-problems was how to express this graph in a how to persist it and to make it efficiently queryable, how right. to make efficient queries against this model. Mm -hmm. 
and we had a semantic idea how this domain should be structured. But uh, what backend, which triple store or graph database or something pro uh, proprietary in memory would be efficient for accessing this model was unclear. And I already had <laughs> written the logic for uh, changing this model three times. And I said, mm, I don't want to do that again. And I found the pattern of uh, CQR, CQRS, okay. and um, thought, okay, let's just write the command side once and uh, just uh, add different backends for querying to see which ones mm -hmm. work best. And then okay. I was uh, right about starting writing my own CQRS framework uh, when I discovered that Axon was available and... Um, some guy in the Netherlands uh, has already written quite a lot of, of that. So, so how did uh, you come to that discovery? Was it just an accidental discovery or did somebody It was in the process it? of learning about the patterns because I found out about the pattern and I thought yeah. that would be a good fit that I don't need to write this command set uh, 10 times mm -hmm. to experiment with uh, different backends. Yep. Um, and then in the process, uh, I stumbled upon it. Nice. With all the different then, talks about event store and so on. Right. And why would uh, reinvent the wheel if somebody else already done yeah, the heavy lifting was, way? Exactly. Right. And that was not my focus, right? I had a goal in mind that I wanted to solve. Yes. Um, which then led to me use, uh, really uh, liking that framework as it was back then, which is already... Yeah. I think that were the early days of Axon with uh, where there only was the Google group for discussion and so on. <laughs> yes, it was a while ago. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, too, I too wrote long some ago, applications. That's still a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, we, uh, as I'm also teaching at the university, I have to teach a practical course every winter semester. And I started using that with uh, my students, introduced them to the framework, and we had some fun. Neat. Yeah, uh, used it also for recently for very different things, um, like uh, we implemented a production assistance system for additive manufacturing, where the okay. entire backend is Axon implemented, and we have an augmented reality Hololens uh, front end coupled to it. Yeah, gotcha. yes. So that's really what I did, and parallel I was doing the research on access control, and then just recently when all the things of that research came to um, a point where I said, now that's really already practical. We can deploy it in production that's usable in Spring Boot applications, for example. I thought, said, okay, now let's go back and close the loop and also do the, a deep <laughs> accent framework integration. And so what you basically ended up doing also was uh, in that process, you sort of create a ended up creating a, somewhat of a framework on top of Axon um, in order to gain what you were trying to do in terms of uh, access control. So let's dig a little bit deeper into that. I know you have uh, uh, introduced some of the annotations during your talk. So let's can we talk a little bit about that and how you can use it on the command side and the query side? And of course, mm -hmm. you did mention the Spring Boot integration as well, if you'd like to uh, go a little bit deeper into that. Yeah, so maybe I start here at the beginning. So what I ended up uh, doing was uh, I ended up disliking XACML so much 
that I said, no, the developer experience was so not enjoyable for myself. Mm. We really ended up writing authoring tools for uh, these XML policies and so on. And some policies we wanted to express were not expressible at all. So ah, okay. I just ended up then how it always is, inventing my own, writing my own. <laughs> do it yourself. If you want something done, right, um, do it yourself. Exactly. Designing a new policy language, which is, mm -hmm. um, I think, much more human readable and writable than something like uh, Zecmo. Yeah. And um, with that comes, of course, it's nice to have a language, uh, but you also need the tools to use it. So right. this comes with all the things you need. Uh, and we have been writing this thing for, in the incarnation we have now, the code goes back now about five years, the code base. Oh, so wow. Great. It's um, a complete engine with a policy decision point, with a server for policy decision point, policy decision point libraries to embed them into Java applications. Um, interfaces to extend it. We have code editors with auto-completion. Uh, we have an um, complete web-based IDE for developing um, policies in the make, which is uh, going to be released soon. Um, and that's nice. Now you have the PDP and you have a language and the tools and you can write it. But what my experience was is that that's completely useless if you do not take care about developer experience. Yeah. So he's <laughs> in the and that end. was that was the reason in the first place. Yeah, because you didn't have yeah, a good experience. Yeah. That was exactly the pain point, because yeah. I had a terrible developer experience. Um, yeah, and exactly. that's something yeah. I wanted to counter, and I wanted to uh, be able to not litter the code with a lot of access control code, but do it in a, the same kind of declarative style that all the simple models like RBAC are supported by frameworks like Spring Boot. Do it in the same style, support right. the, the natural way of developing your business application um, without getting into the way of the developer and making it possible for the developer to get started quickly. Mm -hmm. Also with these kinds of complex uh, frameworks you can always go as deep as you like and make your life as complicated as you like or maybe the domain is doing that for you already right. um, but but just getting started compared to what um, we had there was uh, now the goal to have this developer experience and we started with a spring boot integration so right. just like you would have the existing annotations like pre-authorize, you would have something like pre-enforce or post-enforce. Mm. Gotcha. And uh, then automatically um, a proxy bean is created and a policy enforcement point is wrapped around the method call. Mm. Um, nice. And at the same time, we were switching the basic patterns around a little bit because traditional ABEC is request response based and we changed everything up to be uh, publish-subscribe based. So you would not 
send an authorization request with your question if the permission is there, but you would subscribe to the answers. So it would be a subscription. And this also allowed us to do a deep integration with um, Project Reactor and the WebFlux nice. framework of Spring Boot so that yeah. we now can uh, do access control on, for example, the Flux, which is in Reactor, um, a stream of events instead of just mm -hmm. returning a list. It's an asynchronous occurring stream of events. Um, and we can do uh, runtime modification, can... Uh, do okay while there is no access uh, give the client information that there is no access but still stay subscribed and as soon as access is uh, established sends events the events or mm -hmm. um, send the events until there is no longer an access decision and you can do this and also these but things these uh, side notes <laughs> the favorite the side time, notes these, um, yeah, this is uh, some data about a patient and we update it. Please modify it and classify it before sending it to the customer, uh, mm. to the client. So instead of uh, having the raw sensor data, you would already uh, make it a little, uh, yeah, a little more specific. Or you could say, instead of sending a birth date, map this to an age range to preserve some mm -hmm. sort of privacy in larger data sets. Yeah, and makes you can sense. change all of that at runtime. And that's exact. And how you do that is just by putting an annotation on top of a method returning an object, returning this kind of data stream. It's this return type flux in the angle brackets with the event type. Uh, and these kinds of endpoints would be automatically deployed. And after we succeeded with that, and there's an, an open library for that available for you to, mm -hmm. to use already, um, we said, now let's go the next step uh, because we're using Axon, as I said, in some of our projects. Let's right. um, secure those models as well. Yep. And as you and your audience knows very well, that... It's a very different way of thinking and interacting with uh, services and doing queries. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. usually not done with just um, annotating a repository method. Right. You have to think about um, the domain, about aggregates. You have to think about command query site separately. And we developed a similar approach uh, as with the Spring Boot integration for Axon where you mm -hmm. can establish policy uh, enforcement points in aggregates and the command handling and uh, with a query handler method and subscription queries as well, which right. would be written in a very similar declarative way. Yeah, which is really, which is really easy to follow as well. And um, as I mentioned, I will uh, link in the, the talk that you had and it has some code samples there, but um, just one thing that I was wondering, so the um, annotation that you put in for these uh, uh, pre-handle enforcement, uh, do they usually come prior to the command handler or after the command handler annotation? Or does it matter? I'm assuming it's, from what I remember, I think it comes after the command handler annotation. I think it's not really uh, relevant. Um, it does matter. Mm -hmm. I just have a style preference. Yeah. I like to sort annotations uh, 
regarding to string length <laughs> just mm -hmm. because they are much easier to read <laughs> um, if right. there's no implied uh, semantics on the sequence <laughs> yeah but that's uh, about <laughs> anything that's just I would a personal say preference <laughs> that's just a per personal preference right i like my code to look nice <laughs> <So>. <laughs> It would be nice to have it clean and readable, which is great. Not but in terms to start of a war on that. <laughs> yes, God forbid. But um, no. in terms of in terms of functionality, it really doesn't matter. It can go before no. or after. But what you can think about is um, when is the execution time of mm -hmm. the policy enforcement? So, mm -hmm. for example, in the spring annotations, you have this pre-enforce and post-enforce, right? Which means. Um, do the decision before or after invoking the method. Right. And uh, there is a good indication on why you would do that. For mm -hmm. example, if you query something and the attributes you need to make the decision are only in the query result, you have to uh, use this result uh, to build your authorization question. So uh, if we're talking about the command handling side on Axon, this post-enforcement does not make sense in my opinion. Right. So it's always before uh, doing the execution of the command handler. And um, the good thing is that the way we implement it is um, that you, at the point where the execution of the policy enforcement point is, that's exactly after the replay of the aggregate has happened. So we have mm -hmm. the current state. And um, because we are inside the aggregate and in the same unit of work as the command handler, you can now do anything you could do in a command handler. So nice. you can emit additional events. You can mm -hmm. access the state of the aggregate. Because what do you use the state of the aggregate for? It's this consistency boundary. You make a decision in the command handler before you do the action. Uh, if I do that, is the model consistent? And mm -hmm. basically, exactly. access control is an additional way of looking at exactly this question. Will I end up in a consistent model with regards to my domain requirements? And mm -hmm. this one is looking at the requirements from access control. Right. And the annotations can use a spring expression language to access the um, different attributes of the aggregate, so the member variables, mm -hmm. and uh, then include them into the authorization question and uh, use them directly. So this need you would have in a query model with executing the enforcement after the method is not mm -hmm. there because you already have the state available that you could need before doing that. So for the exactly. command side, we just need the one annotation. Which is the pre-handle, yeah. And the fun stuff is that, again, with a but, <laughs> while you can have <laughs> some global services that can be triggered and you can do side effects, you can also use these but conditions in a way that you can include the logic for them in your aggregate code itself. So you can nice. annotate uh, methods of your um, aggregate class to be a constraint handler, and they can then be triggered by something uh, coming out of the policy decision point. I think it's mm -hmm. not important how that 
works mechanically and how that's yeah. expressed here without looking at some code. But you have means of expressing yes or no, but. Mm -hmm. um, and then this code path can be triggered and that can do anything you could do in a command handler. Right. So you have an additional command handler and these additional conditions are something like you could think about them as additional commands to the aggregate that are coming from the policy decision point semantically. Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. Very, very nice. Um, now, we um, did talk a bit about uh, Spring Boot as well. Now, do folks have to use Spring Boot um, to be able to, to use the language and the framework or uh, is it not a prerequisite? Or is it just to make your life easier to use Spring Boot? Yeah, it's, you don't have to. So it's very modular. So yeah. you can uh, use the policy engine with the interpreter for the policies uh, raw against some APIs and implement mm -hmm. all this enforcement logic yourself if you want to. I would advise against doing that because uh, there are a lot of intricacies uh, like this, but we always mention yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yes. doing this correctly is a lot of code. And um, if you hardwire some conditions, you may not be ready to interpret arbitrary decisions from the PDP. Yes. So um, I would recommend getting someone uh, or getting a team together that writes a generic in, uh, integration for the framework you are using. Yep. Um, or re revert to back use... to... Yeah, go ahead. If you want to use the Axon integration, that currently has a direct dependency on Spring Security mm -hmm. because it comes with some utilities um, like um, command or query interceptors that get mm -hmm. the subject information from uh, the current session, so to speak, uh, and uh, make that available and get that into the metadata of the commands and queries that uh, the, the subject is captured. And also mm -hmm. it enables you to do um, an hybrid implementation where you can use the Accent policy enforcement uh, alongside the Spring Boot enforcement. Because I know many uh, projects where Axon is completely used for the command side, but queries are not handled through the query bus, for example. And yeah. you go directly against um, a Mongo repository, for example. And then mm -hmm. you could use mm -hmm. the uh, Spring Boot integration to annotate your Mongo repository methods and to secure them so you can work in tandem there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as as we were talking about it, uh, revert back to 15 minutes ago when we were talking about, is that your goal to, to write all of these policies and um, everything on your own or just use a couple of frameworks to just get you going with your end goal, which is just working on an application or working on your domain and that user mm -hmm. experience is it nice or is it, you know, you want to well, basically others are save to some judge time how and nice it is. I think <laughs> personally I like it this way. I like it. And, <laughs> yes. and uh developer experience uh, is usually a key requirement when designing everything. Yeah. Um 
with developers, there's always a spectrum of taste and patterns that are preferred. So yeah. uh, it's not likely that's of the taste of everybody. But sure. uh, I think it's in the spirit of uh, this declarative style that's employed in spring generally. And if you like that style of working, that should be uh, right down your alley. Yeah, exactly. So Dominic, we did cover quite a bit on the command side of things, especially when it comes to Axon. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit on the query side as well? And um, why should we use the attribute-based access control on the query side? Or is it useful, useless? So just kind of run me through it. Well, the query side is um, really interesting because here you have to do a little bit uh more than just to decide if a manipulation is allowed or not. Like on the command side, you really have to think about of all the data I'm exposing, um, should I expose this in complete form or uh, should I filter out certain elements or if I'm returning a collection of elements, uh, do these have to be uh, manipulated? Do I have to remove elements from this a stream of elements, for example, and what even happens when I'm doing something like subscription query. So overall, you have the same authorization question again, like on the command side. We have the right. subject, the user or the client that's trying to perform an action, which would be the query, get the data, read the data, and then... Um, the resource would be the data set or a particular piece of data itself. So there you can have the same degree of flexibility as on the command side with regards to formulating a very domain-focused and in your domain language given uh, authorization question instead of going very generic. Right. So And when using SAPL, for example, you have, and especially with Axon, you have uh, two ways to go, basically. The one hand, in Axon generally, you can choose if you want to use the Axon query bus facilities to right. access your query site, or if um, you have used your projections to build a database and you directly query the database by other means, mm -hmm. which both are valid choices in designing right. an Axon application. If you would do the latter and say, yeah, we just uh, access the database directly um, and then if you're in the Spring Boot world, you can use the Spring Boot integration of SAPL, which gives you a number of annotations that can attach policy enforcement points to arbitrary methods. And then you can do filtering and access control and um, you can enforce different obligations and advice during the access control. And also it supports uh, things like reactive data types, like flux and monos to um, subscribe to data streams and to manipulate the data stream at runtime and to stay subscribed. And this is uh, also one of the major differentiating things that uh, Supple does compared to um, think like, things like uh, Zagmal, because mm -hmm. they would have just this query response scheme of, here's the authorization question, give me 
one decision and be done. In this case, if you're do, dealing with um, these reactive data streams in a flux, or let's say a WebSocket or an MQTT stream of events, you have a long-standing connection. And during the established connection and after the subscription has been done, the permissions may actually change or the obligations that have to be enforced. And this is something that Supple um, supports you in. So if you don't use the X and Query Bus, you just use the Spring Boot integration and you're done. Right. For the Axon integration, this um, is a little bit more complicated from an architecture point of view, not from the implementation right. point of view, because yeah. you... Axon provides this uh, location transparency yeah. because the client sends the message and um, you don't know where this is going to be enforced. Exactly. So you have to transfer the notion of the subject with a query. So with a query, you, of course, same, of course, holds true for the command side. I haven't talked in that scope about that. You have yeah. to capture... Uh, the subject and add it to the command query metadata right. and then uh, send it and on the in the microservice or however you have built it in your monolith in the structured monolith you have to decide in the query model then how to handle it mm -hmm. so, so the handling side then, basically then when it gets a little bit more complex right yeah and here you can uh, just annotate your query handler methods on the right. one hand. So you would have uh, matching annotations. You would mm -hmm. add to your query handler methods that right. would then establish this kind of policy enforcement point on the query side. And there again, we support uh, multiple modes where one, for example, also would be a uh, more than one we have three modes for that some of them <laughs> yeah. also do uh, support uh, streaming queries subscription queries very cool yeah so where you also have the same thing as with the flux in general where you have a long-standing connection and during this connection the conditions may change mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um there's also another interesting thing that you can do on the query side here compared to the uh, command side where the command right. side is generally, you really have to check before the command handler is invoked. Okay. And then uh, invoke the command handler if you had the permission. In case of a query handler, to have the knowledge about a potential resource you would like to access, mm -hmm. to, to formulate your authorization question, you right. may have to invoke the query handler first get the resource from the back end mm -hmm. to be okay. able to express your authorization question. For example, if there's a patient that's uh, assigned to a ward in a hospital, then uh, this may be relevant for the authorization process that only the, the staff of that ward may deal with the data of the patient. So mm -hmm. you would have to add this to the patient data. And that right. you can only do after you already retrieved your uh, patient resource from the database. Right. So it's really um, a question of what you want to do there and what you need to formulate your question. Mm 
And then, as you mentioned with the subscription, Corey, for instance, if um, you are using this kind of data, and in, in this example, if another ward needs to access the um, data as well, then would you then um, do this authorization prior to uh, basically activating um, the query handler, or does it happen afterwards, or is it my favorite answer of it depends? Yeah, it depends. <laughs> Uh, it's, so I can make you happy there with the answer. Um, it's just usually I would say it is the sensible default to do it before you invoke it. Mm -hmm. Because if the permission is not granted, you do not waste the resources on uh, performing the query to your database or right. however you have stored it. Mm -hmm. So that would be the sensible way of doing it if that's not necessary. Sure. But if you need the data from the resource, then, of course, um, it makes sense to do it uh, afterwards. After there are different okay. annotations you would select to explicitly tell the engine when to do the enforcement. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So Very good. In essence, uh, this is also completely transparent for the client side. So the mm -hmm. client would never need to have any dependencies on this kind of uh, policy engine besides maybe a small utility that puts the subject into the metadata that mm -hmm. you could do that by yourself or use a library for that. Um, there's one scenario where this is a little bit more complicated, where not really complicated, but there's a use case when you're do, dealing with subs subscription queries where mm -hmm. you can decide so, okay, now I have this long-standing subscription and I have a stream of decisions. How do I link those together? Gotcha, okay. So the first and the default scenario would be, okay, I'm asking for permission. If the permission is granted, I will um, send the stream of updates and the initial result. And as mm -hmm. soon as I get a deny from the policy engine, I will uh, throw an access denied exception, Error. terminate okay. the subscription, and be done. Right. So, but what's about, yeah, I I still would like to stay subscribed. Mm -hmm. So there are two ways do? of doing that. On okay. the one hand, you could say, yeah, I stay subscribed, and as long as I do not have a permission, the query site just drops all messages. Okay. So just any event that happens in between is dropped and then you don't leak this information. Mm -hmm. That's also fine. And those two modes are completely transparent. You don't have to do anything to uh, achieve that on the client side. But there's a third mode that could be very relevant, which is, okay, now there is... a access denied message, but I would like to stay subscribed and I would like to be aware if mm -hmm. I'm currently denied access or not. So for example, okay. if you're rendering a user interface and you're monitoring, let's stick with the um, hospital scenario, you have right. monitoring of some vital signs of the patient mm -hmm. that your UI shows you yeah, you do not have access to these uh, vital signs. Mm -hmm. And now you get permission and then it starts rendering it. 
you lose permission and it can show you that you don't have access and you don't need to query again and again and pull it. It's handled there and there. Um, you have to do a little bit more because this extends the semantics of the traditional subscription query because normally uh, if you go for an accent subscription query, it will be terminated on any error and right. you have to wrap these messages differently and have to provide some tooling to be able to have these kinds of recoverable um, access errors that's right. also supported. And so what in you this can case, do then with would all you... of... Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's fine. I jumped in. No, go ahead. Maybe this will answer my question. Oh, and what you can do with all of these scenarios, either if it's a simple query with a request response or subscription query to the decisions, you can add uh, arbitrary obligations. And there are hooks that allow you on the one hand, for example, to modify the query before it is uh, really evaluated, before it's handed yeah, okay. over to the query handler. For mm -hmm. example, if there's a query that uh, says, I want the data from... 1930 till 2010 but the permissions only yeah you only have the license to get at most 10 years of data mm -hmm. then such an obligation could dynamically uh, degrade the service and change mm -hmm. the query accordingly yeah. or if you have um, any results there are tools for removing data elements from a query response for modifying it, for example, if you have credit card information in it and you want to render it for your user interface, mm -hmm. which may be JavaScript based, you don't want to send the entire credit card number to the user interface, but only these first four numbers that the user right. can identify which credit card it is, the rest should be blackened. Right. So right. you could dynamically blacken parts of strings and completely modify data structures in flight. And yeah, could yeah. also from streams remove elements and so on. Very nice. Um, I did have one question about uh, what you had mentioned on the um, third uh, implementation option, basically, when you have the subscription query and if you get the access denied. Um, in that case, if you are receiving um, your real-time updates, right, and but at one point, you are not allowed to access the data anymore, right? Would you then continuously get these access denied notifications? Or um, in that case, you can basically implement how you want to receive your response um, and say, okay, I don't want to receive these access denied messages or so on. And then once the, um, let's say the query is available and the updates can be accessed again, then we will just start automatically. How do you implement that basically? So in case the client wants to react on this, mm -hmm. the client has to use a special um, query bus implementation, query, uh, not a query bus, a query gateway implementation that we supply as a small library, mm -hmm. which is unwrapping uh, these um, events so what the process would be, you get your normal updates and then you get an error, which would uh, be an error in a flux. And then you right. can use um, matching tools to recover from the error if you want. And because of that, this unwrapping happens in this uh, dedicated query gateway that is possible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, also, you can register matching listeners to these errors. Gotcha. Um, and the flow is that you receive the access deny message and then nothing until you get um, a permit message. And then the events start flowing again. Flowing again. Very good. So Very good. Makes sense. If you do not want to react on it and on the query side, on the query um, handler, there is the annotation that would support this kind of recoverability, but you don't use it and you just use the default gateway. It uh, just falls back to um, one of the other strategies and you don't have to worry about it if you don't want to consume it. So it's really uh, robust against this. But if you have the knowledge that this may be supported um, because your client wants to react on this kind of thing, you can. Yeah, very good. Nice. So let's go back to the uh, deployment. You did talk a bit about it, um, but let's maybe dig a little bit deeper into um, some of the points that you were mentioning. For instance, the embedded PDP and the dedicated PDP server and also the CI CD pipeline. Sure. So where do we start? Okay, we have. <laughs> I know too many ways. things all at once. <laughs> yes, it's a lot, <laughs> but it's um, no problem. When you're developing an application and you're using a JVM language, you can uh, have the choice of using uh, the policy engine directly and. Uh, mm-hmm linking this interpreter and engine into your code as a Maven or Gradle dependency so that it will be bundled with executable. Right. Or you can use uh, a dedicated PDP server where you deploy your policies and uh, use a simple API to consume that. The framework integrations we have um, use an interface against the PDP and uh, they don't care if if you're using the embedded one or the remote one. So your code will look the same. It's just a matter of configuration and preference if you want to have the engine inside the executable or if you want to do it uh, centrally with some network round trip. And for the embedded one, you have again two choices. You can either treat your policies uh, just like part of your code base of your application and put them in a special folder uh, of your program resources, just like you would do your application YAML or uh, properties files or static web files, put them in the resources folder uh, and you're done. And then you have the advantage that you can ship it in the same process as your code. You can uh, write policy tests uh, just alongside your normal unit tests, um, and it's easy. The disadvantage is that you cannot change the policies at runtime. If you want to do that, you can configure it to say, okay, yes, I built a Docker container, and there's a data volume, and this folder on the data volume, we put our policies, and the engine will automatically monitor this folder for changes and uh, adjust decisions at runtime if these uh, policies change. So, and for the server, we have uh, two versions. We have a very simple headless one for uh, these kinds of Kubernetes uh, deployments where you are dealing with a lot of little pods 
uh, and you want to don't want necessarily want to have uh, complex UIs. Uh, that's also just a server that acts in the same way, monitoring uh, data volume with the policies and will update the clients at runtime. No need to restart anything if you change policies. And we have a PDP server uh, where the policies are stored in a relational database, which also comes with a web UI where you can um, use a web-based policy editor for our policy language as APL, which also comes with features like available documentation of function libraries and uh, external attributes, as well as code completion uh, features and so on. Right. So, and then you mentioned these kind of CI pipelines. So that's... Um, one way of thinking, or what's the motivation here? So we earlier talked about this kind of separation of concerns and looking at which team is responsible for what in your application and infrastructure deployment. Factor out the administration of policies easily. So also with Zagmul, you usually have an authorization server. There you write all your policies and store them. What you rarely get is some kind of formal verification if your policy working as intended. And also with SAPL, there is no means of doing this formally, but we treat policies just as code. Mm -hmm. So, And what we have is uh, a set of libraries where you can write uh, unit tests in Java for your policies verify if they fulfill the requirements. This also comes with a Maven plugin that where you can define quality gates regarding uh, are the tests fulfilled, do I have the right code coverage, and with code coverage we also analyze in the rules and the policies uh, which are already triggered by your tests, so you end up with an HTML report uh, like you get uh, in Eclipse or IntelliJ showing you yellow, green, or red, uh, what the coverage of your code base uh, now regarding the policies is. So, and if you have this kind of project, you can have, for example, in your uh, source management tool, say Git, uh, mm -hmm. you can manage this kind of policy project alongside policy tests, and then use this to drive the updating of your policy decision point. So you have something like GitHub Action, Jenkins, or whatever your uh, CI pipeline of choice mm -hmm. is. And you can right. say, yeah, run these tests. If these are in staging or already in production, then do this or that, move this to the other branch, push it to production, push it to test. And you can atomically update the data volume, for example, of your PDP servers or even of your embedded PDPs. Um, so you can implement a very, I think, natural way of updating and managing these policies in a typical uh, CI, CD environment. Of course, these are complex by themselves, yeah, but uh, exactly. it doesn't add a significant additional complexity. You just can use the tools you're using anyhow to manage your infrastructure. 
Yeah. And there's and, something um, that we're developing right now is uh, that you, we have an integrated IDE for these kinds of projects where you would have a Visual Studio-based, Git pod-based um, development environment with a code editor for SAPL with a testing tool where you can live edit requests and see outcomes, link that to your live um, information points and to test it and to write your tests in. Really neat. That's really great. So, um, and thank you for covering the the support for, um, you know, the kind of support that you offer as well. Um, so we did talk a lot about why attribute-based access control is important and it's good and um, how to uh, basically implement it and so on. Can we t maybe touch on some of the cons here as well? I like to... <laughs> Kind of sure. not always talk about the rainbows and unicorns, but maybe sort of like real life complexity. And, you know, is there an issue with performance and some of the other um, maybe cons that it may have? Yes, of course. I think there are uh, three main cons to uh, this approach. I think I touched mm -hmm. a little bit on it earlier when I said, if RBAC and role-based access control works for you and you do not have any of these this complexity and you're happy don't bother don't worry right? about it <laughs> exactly right so, but but if your domain has a certain complexity and you do not want to um, do it all by hand in your code in your domain model and this is some orthogonal requirement to the main processes so what uh, do you get with it of course the approach is complexer than writing an RBAC model. You have to learn a policy language. Yep. The tooling is there. Um, like I said, we try to make this as easy as possible as we can. Right. But it's quite a learning curve to get started with that. Yeah, yeah. But it's not much different than, okay, do we write the code ourselves or do we use something like Spring Boot or Axon? It's really just I mean, I think there's a learning curve in anything. Things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think whether and you then, do it yourself or you're learning a tool, it's there's always some learning curve that's involved, for sure. Exactly. So, and then, of course, because it's complex and it can do much more and it's more involved, there comes a performance hit. Mm -hmm. And this really depends. Can do locally... A significant uh, five-digit number of decisions uh, easily. Um, mm. But if your rules are complex and you have a lot of rules, then that may become a bottleneck some, at some point. We have some yeah. fancy uh, indexing algorithms and so on to make this uh, more performant and in-RAM caching and so on. But basically, yes, it, it's a performance hit. And then you have to take into account the usual thing you would have with, with something like Axon as well. If you're delegating something to the infrastructure, sending a query in Axon, using Axon server, routing that, coming back, you have the network round trip. The same issue, you end up with a dedicated PDP server. You have to send a question and you have a certain latency till you get the um, first decision. However, the advantages, just like with subscription queries in Axon, as it's a subscription, 
if there's later an update to that, you get this uh, quasi immediately. Yes, real-time update, not have... yeah, which is great. So if you have this continuous monitoring of a permission, that's more performant in essence. Right. And again, you can choose uh, with regards to your requirement if you want to do this network round trip or you would prefer an embedded PDP and push the policies there. It's really, you can do what you like there. We try to not get into your way and make everything easy, but there is a performance hit. That's clear. Yeah. Then you sense. have the issue of ability. Mm-hmm. It's we do not have, and the uh, Zachmel guys also don't have formal proving tools for correctness mm-hmm. policies. So it's not provable, but it's testable. So that's we address it just like code because we say these are complex things. We have seen provable access controls models, which end up to be very formal and difficult to write also with regards to the policy, which puts a barrier between the developer and the stakeholders when communicating about the access control requirements. It's just Mm -hmm. like the old thing, DDD uh, question, how do we communicate with the stakeholders? Uh, Can we put the domain language, the ubiquitous language somehow into the code or not? And usually I would say that the provable systems are not that well suited to in the context of a ubiquitous language. Hmm. Gotcha. So that's the trade-off, right? Uh, yeah. Still, we try to tackle that with the kind of testing tools we provide. Yeah. Which in a way is... Uh, um... It's not provable in a sense that you can sit down and prove it, but in, in a sense it is because of the the testing. You can kind of see how um, how it's uh, performing and doing. So really great, and um, thank you for making this complex and abstract topic in a way um, very practical and very um, easy to follow and understand. Uh, I appreciate that. To close off the discussion, though, I wanted to kind of go back to what we were talking a little bit ago about um, your relationship with Axon, and you're one of our partners, which is really amazing. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about um, your consultancy services, maybe, and also what kind of partnership you have with us? Yeah, so uh, so we're not a solution provider. So the kind of partnership we have with Axon is really um, to be... I think one of your employees called it as being a friendly face <laughs> to uh, gotcha. to act for uh, people trying to uh, use Axon in their development environment and their applications to have somebody who is a sparring partner uh, and looking at their requirements, how to uh, tackle these problems, uh, how to structure it, uh, to have a sparring partner really uh, to talk about this. Yes. Um, also, we can uh, provide service in the area of proof of concept development and mm-hmm. uh, doing reviews. And uh, also, one of the main areas I'm active right now in is uh, training teams in using Axon in practice. So, getting them up to speed um, and also doing some, going beyond just the uh, training we can do with. Uh, Axon Academy and the kind of training material we have there, 
really get into the practice and um, getting your fingers dirty and actually write some code and uh, work with them, setting up the things and uh, show where some typical pitfalls would be in developing your uh, Axon applications. So it's really yeah. not big solution development that we're doing right now. We're doing that internally to a certain degree. Uh, we're really yeah. helping teams to uh, work in the, let's call it the Axon ecosystem. And of course we, um, can help with these kinds of uh, security issues as well with access control in X and other frameworks. Maybe I can do one shameless plug here in the end. Of course, go for like it. To mention uh, that all the stuff I've been talking about is uh, available as open source and uh, you can go to sapl.io to find all, out all about the project. There will be some blogs and tutorials. You can find a demo project for the Axon integration on our GitHub repository and uh, the licensing of the core engine and everything I've been talking about so far is uh, Apache 2.0 licensing. So um, there's a low barrier of uh, entry and yeah. uh, Amelie, we are looking forward to hear from you. And maybe you want to join us at, on our Discord server for the project, which is also linked on the SAPL side. Other than that, awesome. I've been enjoying my time very much here on the podcast. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for mentioning that. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody go check it out and uh, try it out and uh, let Dominic know what you think. And uh, thank you so much again. Have a great day and talk to you soon. Sarah, bye. I hope you enjoyed the talk about attribute-based access control as much as I did. Please join me next time for other great conversations. Until then, have a great time and happy coding.